0: Good afternoon and
1: welcome to the Jewish Policy Center webinar. I am Shoshana Bryan, Senior Director of the JPC and your host. Thank you for following us to a different time and place this week. Um, I think it will end up being worth your while. We are gonna talk about American defense policy today and the role of Congress in establishing American uh, parameters which is very timely I think in light of the Chinese balloon. Before we get to our guest, Seth Cropsey, here is your JPC commercial. The JPC was established in 1985 as a 501 organization, providing analysis of both foreign and domestic policies. You can find us on our website, jewishpolicycenter.org. There you can sign up for our insight article, and you can see our magazine, In Focus Quarterly, The winter issue of InFocus Quarterly is up there now, and Seth Cropsey, today's speaker, is featured as our essay. The spring issue will be devoted to Israel. That's, I have to say, our favorite issue. Uh, JewishPolicyCenter.org. The JPC supports a strong American defense capability, U.S.-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. We support the legitimacy and security of Israel against anyone who would deny those. As an organization that sits slightly to the right of center, the JPC advocates for small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, energy security, free speech, and intellectual diversity. It's a big agenda. Now your public service announcement, you are muted. That's it. Uh, you can use the, J- the Q&A function if you have questions. I'm monitoring. And now our, our guest, Seth Cropsey, Seth is president of the Yorktown Institute, which is named for the pivotal 1781 maritime battle, reminding us of the requirement that America always needs to be prepared to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our children. Seth was previously senior fellow and director of the Center for American Sea Power at Hudson Institute. He specializes in defense strategy, U.S. foreign and security policy in the Middle East and East Asia, and the future of U.S. Naval power. He is himself a Navy veteran. He began his government career at DOD as assistant to then Secretary of Defense, Caspar Weinberger, and subsequently served as deputy undersecretary of of the Navy in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. He also served in the Bush administration as principal deputy assistant secretary of defense for special operations and low intensity conflict. He's had public diplomacy roles including at Voice of America, where he uh, ran the editorial policy on solidarity in Poland, among other things. And as director of the US government's International Broadcasting Bureau, he supervised the agency's efforts to increase radio and television broadcasting to the Muslim world. Uh, Seems a worthwhile endeavor. He was visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and has been director of the Heritage Foundation's Asia Studies Center. And he's been published and on TV and on radio and online, just about everywhere you think he should be. Seth Cropsey, I am pleased to say, the floor is yours. Thanks, Asana. Um There's
0: a lot going on these days, you, as you
2: pointed out. Uh, what that really requires is uh, not only crisis management, but also some idea of where are we going? Um, and that's what the that's the point of uh, the congressional requirement that the administration uh, inform the country and Congress what its uh, what its plans are on for national security and military military uh, military defense. Uh, but the Biden administration, the Biden administration, uh, in uh, compliance to that. Uh, published its national security strategy uh, uh, this past October, so coming up on four or five months ago. Um, the document, uh, I think, epitomizes what's wrong um, with the current administration's strategic perspective. Um, its greatest failure is this, what I call the securitization of everything, with no focus on any given strategic question. Um, the Biden administration faces a crisis across Eurasia from Ukraine to the Taiwan Strait. It's engaged itself intellectually in a public uh, task of great importance with no no real substance. There's nothing to chew on there. Uh, the National Defense Strategy, which was published shortly after the National Security Strategy simply reinforces the the former document's fecklessness. The Biden administration, uh, I think, may well be derelict in its duty to secure America's defenses. However, Congress can act uh, purposefully, um, which is to say to compel the administration to embrace a more Um, coherent defense posture and advocate the capabilities and the budgets um, the military actually requires. This would be well within the legislative branch's constitutional role and uh, apt, given the increasingly perilous world that we're facing. So Congress requires, as I mentioned ago, every administration to publish a national Security strategy, but the document is released um, by the that that this administration released is really the um, the height of uh, bureaucratization. It's not a a defense um, strategy in <laughs> in any normative respect. Um, it's not a grand strategy. It, it is rather a, a sort of si- kind of signaling, a message messaging exercise uh, that's aimed primarily at domestic audiences. In one sense, the the national security strategy, like uh, and the Biden administration is not alone in this. The, the, this this kind of uh, vagueness is not is not new to presidents presidential administrations. So, um, but this document is full of priorities from countering China and Russia to mitigating climate change and enduring American resilience. Um, But the structure of the Biden national security strategy does point to uh, a a kind of strategic rationale, a set of of assumptions about the world, um, about its major actors. And its critical dynamics that are useful to those who want to understand policy. I think four elements are relevant. Um, All of them point to a lack of seriousness and, more fundamentally, to a lack of strategic change since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, First, the national security strategy released in October is. it's a, it's an ideological manifesto, not a realistic look at the security elements of Eurasian competition. It begins with the same rhetoric that has become commonplace in any administration's national security strategy. The world, it says, quote, is more dangerous, quote, than at any previous point. Yet the United States remains or retains, at any rate, an enduring role, their words with its strategies precepts remaining as sound as they were 10, 20 years ago, or even half a century ago. Notable aspect, I think, is the explicit equivalence between traditional
0: and non-traditional threats. Um, What do I mean? The, The US must compete and cooperate simultaneously
2: Uh, the climate problems and public health questions, even inflation issues are worthy of consideration and they are relevant to a security assessment. Of course, there is an overlap between climate, inflation, health, and other questions and the nation's broader strategy. But a security strategy Is the wrong venue in which to discuss, for example, climate um, adaptation or an anti inflationary policy. If every issue is a security issue, none is. Second, the national security strategy shows the degree to which the current administration does not see current Eurasian competition as military competition. This focus on non-traditional security issues dovetails with the Biden administration's doctrines of what they call integrated deterrence. Uh, The national security strategy, which I'm gonna call NSS, if I'm allowed that bureaucratic uh, shorthand, (laughs) defines it as combining our strengths to deter America's adversaries. This sort of looks like the smart power that the Obama administration's doctrine uh, advocated that combined diplomacy and military action to achieve American interests, or as, you know, if normal people would call it, statecraft. Uh, So much like smart power, Integrated deterrence appears to be a meaningless term with no relevance to the national security uh, professional or to any interested citizen. In fact, it's a strategic dog whistle uh, to Biden's political allies that the administration does not prioritize conventional deterrence and warfighting capacity. Integrated deterrence serves to create justifications to cut and reorient defense spending and traditional military means in favor of domestic policy priorities. This points to the, I think, to the third issue. um, And that is the the Biden administration's supposed conviction that American um, economic resilience is the foundation of national power. In the abstract, this claim, It's a serious one, Um, but it's no longer 1945, and it's not 1960. The U.S. must apply its power with care and uh, and prudence. Instead, Biden administration has uh, has sort of dressed up climate handouts as an anti-inflationary measure. The the lost art of net assessment, the art of strategy, can be understood as compelling or um, inducing an opponent, a foe, to take steps in one's own interest, in our interest. The Biden administration has triggered and sustained an inflationary crisis and concurrently introduced a defense strategy that uh, will hollow out the U.S. military. The administration's point is to justify reducing reducing American military strength because it sees competition as a complex chain of diverse causes. Fourth, the administration's refusal to recognize Iran as a legitimate strategic threat reveals its unwillingness to recognize tangible competition and adapt Adapt to new circumstances. The Biden team still clings to the the chimerical Obama-era dream of a regional realignment in which Israel and Saudi Arabia were humbled and Iran elevated. The U.S. recently bullied Israel into conceding its maritime space to Hezbollah, and by extension to Iran. Uh, regional integration. Empowers Iran at the expense of Israel and the and the Gulf Arabs. Um, all this while, Iran provides Russia um, with weapons to strike targets throughout Ukraine. Although the new Iran nuclear deal may be dead for now, as protests surge in the in the self-styled Islamic Republic, it will return. When the news media conditions have have shifted, um, so the national defense strategy simply doubles down on the national security strategy's mistakes. Indeed, it 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 offers slightly greater clarity as to the military meaning of integrated deterrence. Um, the military has five tasks, the first two of which. Uh, protect critical infrastructure, and prevent a nuclear strike on on the United States homeland. They have either very little to do with the military or very little to do with the current strategic balance, despite bluff and bluster. China and Russia are not on the cusp of attacking the U.S. with nuclear weapons. The priorities list is what was termed in an earlier age conventional deterrence the ability to prevent adversaries from actually acting decisively to modify the strategic balance by capturing um, key territories. In turn, the Defense Department will emphasize campaigning, a concept that essentially reduces to uh, conducting daily actions with a vague strategic purpose in peacetime. Why the word campaigning? to convince the casual reader that the Defense Department is engaged in a robust competition and knows it and um, avoids the obvious reality that the U.S. is completely unready for a major
0: conflict. So that gets us to Congress and defense policy. Um, A more uh, Sensible
2: national security strategy would have begun with a recognition of the current geopolitical situation. The struggle for Eurasian mastery that involves the US, China, Russia, Iran, and the various secondary powers throughout the landmass. American strategy has a singular objective to preserve the existing Eurasian security system and counter Chinese, Russian, and Iranian attempts to overturn it. This requires all elements of national power, but most specifically, the military. America's adversaries pose a military threat and seek to achieve their goals by military means, as well as others, but military is the the spine. The Biden administration does face a dangerous world, Russia makes nuclear threats. The war in Ukraine drags on. Russia spoils the global food and energy supply. China pressures Taiwan. Xi Jinping has become maximum leader of China. Iranian weapons supply Russian forces fighting in Ukraine. And Chinese technology assists their development. The, the, the Biden administration's diffuse and domestically focused response is as inadequate as it is dangerous. The advantage of the federal system with the separation of powers, that is,
0: um, well, it provides multiple avenues of policy oversight. Only the executive branch can fight a war, which makes sense Um, and is also constitutional. Modern Americans have
2: forgotten that the very purpose of the presidency with its sweeping powers, um, its unitary nature and, and strong central character was to allow it to act with dispatch and with secrecy. As a result, the president has broad latitude in matters of statecraft. That is when the president employs (coughs) military force, (coughs) sorry, or diplomatic elements to uh, to further American interests. This latitude is not um, sacrosanct. Uh, However, when one shifts to long-term discussions of strategy uh, or force structure, um,
0: it, it, it,
2: that's a demonstration that there's flexibility built into the to the way that the federal government operates and in the and the executive branch in particular. But it is Congress that approves the budgets for the military, and Congress that scrutinizes and and holds to account American generals and admirals during wartime. The legislature has a constitutional right to impose its strategic concepts on the executive so long as individual senators and representatives are not directing military operations. Congress has taken the lead in a constructive manner manner on military questions in the past um, in U.S. history. Uh, I think most notably um, before the Second World War Carl Vinson spearheaded the 1938 Naval Act, which increased Navy fighting strength by 20%. And then two years later in 1940, the Two Ocean Navy Act, which which sort of kick-started American defense industrial production and provided the Navy with the fighting corps we need during the Pacific War. Um, In today's context, uh, there are five concrete steps that Congress can take to improve America's ability to confront a major Eurasian military challenge. First, Congress can make sure that the force is the correct size. Expanding the services provides a a strategic reserve of trained manpower. As the Russian-Ukrainian war shows, modern combat remains brutal, and casualties are high. Ensuring that all services meet their annual recruiting targets at a minimum is a military necessity. Even more reasonable, however, would be to expand the Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force's top line personnel numbers to ensure that they can sustain damage and keep fighting.
0: Uh, Sorry about that. In turn, the remaining restrictions on new
2: recruits should be reevaluated, particularly those that disqualify potential soldiers
0: for crimes that are now legal, so-called crimes. Second, um,
2: Congress can compartmentalize funding uh, in total for strategic reinvestment. It's not only the military services and Pentagon that will demand new funds. The Biden administration's national strategies are once again excuses to raid the defense budget. The executive um, sort of then
0: speaking on behalf of the services, channeling the services, um, uh, are doing so to raid the defense budget. The, uh, the Services
2: are under pressure from the Democratic Party. The administration is from Democratic Party's left and will seek to siphon off as much cash as possible. Some of the endeavors that the Biden administration pr- proposes will be reasonable, in fact, particularly those that ensure that the US has access to specific sovereign capabilities. Um, Example, uh, semiconductor fabrication facilities that that can be employed during a major conflict. Yet the competition that America faces requires a significantly enlarged defense budget, something around at least 7% of GDP instead of the current approximately almost 3%. Strategy is another matter. Uh, where Congress can make a difference and should. Congress can provide the services with the support they need to think about strategy.
0: The services, barring arguably the Marines, um, are, let's just be
2: as charitable as possible, relaxed on the subject of strategy. with an understanding of their role in modern combat that is vague. Contrary to the still fashionable demands of jointness, and we can talk about that, it's far more intellectually reasonable to begin with the services. Strategic thought requires new blood. This is likely to be found far from the joint staff, and standard military operational structures, and particularly within the services themselves, Congress can oversee the revitalization of actual service strategic cultures. Of equal importance, Congress can expand those who participate in actual strategic thought, linking with think tanks and uh, the academy far more effectively than today to ensure more comprehensive military thinking. And again, that's something we could talk about also. I mean, uh, Samuel Huntington, the late Samuel Huntington at Harvard, was writing about this, you know, almost 70 years ago, 65 65 years ago, making roughly the same argument that those who are competent and most knowledgeable about the fighting fighting capabilities, namely the military services, should have a powerful input into how those service how, how the services are used and how they're used together. And lacking that, they're in trouble. Let me move on to the fourth and then I'll conclude. Congress can revitalize the defense industrial base. This demands far more than um, than simplistic industrial strategies, uh, improved management techniques. Uh, reorganizing who is responsible for acquisition. Um, Rather, it requires supporting smaller defense providers, uh, providing incentives for the development of dual-use technologies, um, particularly in unmanned contexts, um, uh, reducing uh, regulatory barriers for defense collaboration, And subsidizing various forms of training, particularly for large industrial production and the repair of warships in a conflict at sea, which any conflict with China would be, warships will be sunk and some of them will be damaged and they need to be repaired. Over time, automation will provide efficiency and displace much of human labor, but during the current sino-American competition, manual labor and traditional productivity remain critical. Fifth, Congress can properly fund two critical partly military capacities: a functioning logistic system that's equal to requirements and a more robust space industry. The U.S military lacks, lacks the sea lift capacity to sustain itself in combat. I mean, real combat. Its sea lift capabilities rest on a far broader foundation than just military assets. The U.S. relies on the merchant marine to conduct resupply missions during a major war. Uh, Much like America's satellite system, the merchant marine is sufficient for peacetime, but not for wartime. Both require a funding injection and explicit government support. So I, I, just to wrap up here, Congress can't make foreign policy wholesale, and that's good, but it can through prudent, aggressive action, steer the ship of state on the course that it should be taking. Congressional actions like those outline, that I've spoken about here Uh, can push back against the Biden administration's attempted erosion of traditional deterrence and um, and military capacities and ensure that the United States is prepared for any contingency on the Eurasian continent, especially a Sino-American war. And let me leave it at that.
1: Okay, so thank you. And you've prompted some questions. The first of which is you mentioned that President Biden and the administration are kind of pitching at domestic audiences, you know, with the green this and a, um, all those other sorts of things. But nothing can be done by Congress, it seems to me, without a certain level of public understanding and public agreement as to where we are. So we've got a couple of questions that came in. I'm going to run them together and then let you deal with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, In the past 10 days, we've had news about a Chinese spy balloon flying over Alaska and Canada and across the uh, continental United States. From the public's point of view, is that a blip on the radar, unintended, or maybe that's the tip of the iceberg that will change public interest in defense spending from really negligible uh, to something more positive? It's also possible, uh, we hope, that Iran's selling of drones to Russia that are being used in Ukraine against civilians will also help the public see the nature of the threats. Given the current polarization in Congress, can we have hearings on these things? Do you anticipate that Congress will do its job in bringing the American public with it for whatever it decides to do?
0: Well, Congress can help by uh, by speaking about this. Um, By writing
2: about it in the national media, uh, by telling people in, by telling the constituent, their constituents, that this is a serious situation. But that comes down to, uh, uh, that comes down to the partisanship that we're, that we uh, are experiencing right now, which is, as you know, is quite, Bitter, um, it, it, you you mentioned the the Chinese balloon. Um, I, I the answer to the question about galvanizing public opinion is unclear,
0: but I think what is clear is that uh, the problems that
2: our defenses face today that I described in the last few minutes
0: show no sign of being resolved without leadership. It's going to take a president
2: or a, you know, a very effective and vocal member of Congress or a group of them to get people to understand that uh, the funding level for the military is insufficient to defend the United States. Now, the balloon might awaken people. I don't think that it will. Um, I think think that the alternative is um, to leadership in the executive branch, the president, or Congress is more likely. And that is that some really scarifying event um, will get people thinking, Uh, You know, um, an attack on Taiwan, for example, God forbid. Um, Well, yes. Um, I I, I hope it's not necessary to say I don't want to see that happen. Right. Um, But I I am concerned that um, that will simply go on in the the path that we have, you know, since the um, since the end of the Cold War thinking that the military that we had at the time that the Cold War ended is in relation to the foes that we face today the same. And it's not. And it's going to take something, either leadership or events, to get Americans to understand that. And then they will act.
1: Uh, Somebody's got to act before the people act. But okay, let's proceed along with that, that thought about... Something like an attack on Taiwan, God forbid, would be a galvanizing event, probably for the American public, as much as for for the military. Um, Isn't that sort of where General Minahan was going, that the possibility that China's um, designs on Taiwan may be much shorter term than the intelligence community, which says we've got about 10 years till China, uh, is going to do it. And General Minahan said, no, maybe there are reasons they'll do it in two years or three years. Was he trying to kind of prod people into thinking about those unthinkable thoughts and get them to move?
2: I, I hope he was. Um, but uh, it, it, it's important to note that General Minahan is not alone. <laughs> there have been others who have, but... have made similar remarks. I mean, going back several years, not to not only the current U.S. commander of forces in the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific, but his predecessor have both said that uh, the possibility of a a PRC and of a communist Chinese attack over the Taiwan Straits um, is likely within the next five years or possible within the next five years. And uh, they're, their warning was, "We're not prepared for it." So, uh, yes, I think that was exactly what uh, General Minahan was uh, was trying to do, and I think that's what other four star officers have been trying to do in the past. And you know, are they listening?
1: Is who listening? Is becomes part of the question. Are you listening? Are we listening? I mean. I'm sort of listening. I'm worried about what he said, yeah. because I think he made a pretty decent case yeah. for China changing its its timeline. But then you go and look at Congress, and this is your thing, you know, the looking at Congress part. Um, the public tends to think about the defense budget in terms of dollars spent. And you can say, you know, we need to go from three and a half to seven percent of GDP to make it enough money. But It's also true that Congress last year passed a defense budget that was in fact larger than the administration requested. So it's not just the money, it's where we spend it. Congress agreed to those energy-related and anti-climate-related subsidies and all those things that, that aren't really in the nature of strategic defense. How do we get Congress, first of all, to focus on the specific threats that we face? But secondly, is it possible to shift Money within the defense budget from things that I would call maybe nice to have but not essential to our defense to procurement, recruitment, training, retention—things that that are in fact necessary.
2: Well, yeah, uh, it is. It is certainly possible to reprogram funds to the Defense Department, but it, one has to anticipate what the Defense Department is going to say uh, and what the administration is likely to say when um, when faced with, <laughs> with that prospect, which is what is it you want us to sacrifice, okay? Um, so the usual trade-off, at least within Navy, is that when the budgets get tight, um, the priority is uh, is operations. So things like repairs and maintenance get kind of put on the back burner as much as possible. And the money is spent to the money that exists is spent to make sure that um, that the ships that are out there continue to do the missions that are assigned to them uh, in defense of the country. We and that's a to- problem that, oh, that we're always going to face. So you don't, and, and we haven't even said a word about procurement.
1: I'm going to, do we need more shipyards? I mean, I have understood, this is not my area, it's yours. <clears throat> I have understood that if we want to build new ships or increase the fleet, we need shipyards. So do we have to go back and begin <clears throat> procurement changes? At the very bottom, we, we have just talked to Lockheed Martin about Stinger missiles, and we were told it would take almost three years to get factory production lines of Stinger missiles up, delivering to the government. Shipyards, all of that are how far back do we have to go? <clears throat> well,
2: <clears throat> we need more shipyards, right? Uh, yes, Soshana, the answer is yes, we need more shipyards. Right now, the, um, the shipyards are supposed to be producing two attack. Nuclear attack submarines, nuclear powered attack submarines, and one new um, member of the triad submarine, which is to say, a ballistic missile carrying submarine per year, the Columbia class so-called Columbia class. Um, that is we are and we're not making it. we're not we're not achieving those goals. It's less than those than that three. Although the defense industrial base refers to it as five because the Columbia class is more complicated and bigger than the Virginia class. But let's not go there. We we ought to be at a minimum producing five attack submarines per year. That's a bare minimum. Um, and where do I get that figure from the demand in the that a conflict in the West Pacific would Uh, would incur, Um, in other words, a conflict with China uh, because of the stealth that comes with submarines um, and their relative um, invulnerability to Chinese missiles, which are uh, preponderant in their numbers. They have a lot of them. Um, In order to do that, we would have to make an investment in, um, in plant facility and um in have to make a capital investment that would get those plants, those those shipyards, the ones that are running already um up uh, to the level where they could produce more boats, submarines are called boats um and to uh, and also to build new shipyards or develop ones that are, that are already existing but could use an infusion of of money to uh to increase their uh their output now, we have there are other other things we could do as well but they're very they're also politically difficult like for example to increase the size of the the surface fleet um by buying vessels that are made in other countries or by making making um Ships that are designed for the you know Navy ships, like frigates in foreign shipyards, right um, But that's very difficult because you know, the name of the game in Congress when it comes to defense spending is how does it um, has it improve my you know jobs in my district? And if you build a uh, a constellation class frigate in an Israeli shipyard, it's not going to be any dollars for any congressman in in you know in, in in the House.
1: But it doesn't seem to me that congressmen are building ships anyway. So as long as they're not trying to build ships in China or places where we have other kinds of political problems, um, maybe we should be looking overseas. But again, we've we've kind of laid this. You know, the president can say whatever he wants, and this president does say whatever he wants. But it seems to me the real problem is that Congress has to do the hard work and maybe it's not ready to. Maybe it's not the American public that's an issue here. Maybe it's Congress. Uh, because let me throw another one at you. We're kind of coming to the end and I just want to toss things at you because this is really very educational as I see it. Um, you mentioned right-sizing the military, uh, including expanding the Navy, the Marine Corps and the Air Force. Uh, what happens if people don't want to serve? Not only don't want to serve, but I read somewhere recently that only about 23% of the American public that is of uh, enlistment age, so I think they were going like 18 to 25 or whatever that was, uh, qualified for service. What do we do if we don't have the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines? Do we need a draft? Do we need more money? I, I don't know.
2: Well, a draft is not going to improve the, uh, the physical standards
1: That's right.
2: the of the military. you will just get... Other people, uh, a larger pool of people who are for various reasons disqualified. Um, uh, a few questions occur. Have we um is is the have we recruited to the level that we could? Um can we offer more inducements, that is to say, money uh to encourage uh Young people to join the military. Um do we know what sorts of things, why it is that they're uh, that they're not joining the military? No, I don't think we do. No, I don't think we do either. Um, uh, can we um is there anything we can do securely and safely to uh, to offer uh, people who are on the uh, about to qualify for citizenship? Uh, improved um, access to American citizenship in exchange for military service. I mean, if we start to think about, Shoshana, the real issue here is, is this a problem that is so pressing that we we need to start doing things that we haven't done before? Or can we just kind of figure, you know, just use bailing wire and band-aids to kind of muddle our way out of it? And the prevailing ideas and culture, both within the military and in the, in the, in the political, uh, in, in Congress and the administration, is that if we are in an interwar period today, we are not in a pre-war period. I don't agree. I think we are in a pre-war period. And changing the way you think about that, changing the way we think about that, is the key to starting to achieve the the kinds of objectives that you're talking about.
1: So we're coming to the end of the program, and you've just said something that's um, sort of upsetting to me. I agree that we are in a pre-war period, that, that muddling along and hoping that everything just plays out for the next period. This is insufficient, insufficient. But also, people who listen to this program periodically know that I like to go out On a positive note, so do you have a positive statement to make at the end of this program about our ability to find the political, social, military resources to change our thinking before we have to, before Pearl Harbor comes, before, you know, an attack on New York City comes again? Can we do this? Mm. Uh, I think we could. But I, I, you know, the
2: first question that comes to my mind when in answer to yours is,
0: what is an example of where we have done this as a country before? Well, I
1: would say 9-11 is one. Now we didn't go to war in that sense, but the coming together of the public is one. Pearl Harbor, clearly. Um,
2: but but you Other than that, I'm not sure. No, but but Shoshana, I I understand your question to be this, what can we say positively about the United States' ability to anticipate this so that instead of reacting to some horrific event, we anticipate it?
1: That's a good way to phrase it.
2: And my question to you was, can you think of an example where in the past where we have anticipated?
1: Oh, No. No. I cannot. Okay, so but you're, but you're so ruining my. You're ruining the end of my program by not leaving us on a positive note here, So I would say we do not anticipate very well. We react decently. Um, we've come out of wars better than we went into them in certain cases. But anticipating, no, I don't think so. Well,
2: let me let me let me try to. Uh, first of all, I agree with you. But let me try to be to be positive here because I, I'm. I've been accused of, be, accused of being a Cassandra before. This not, you're not the first person <laughs> I've heard this from. So um, uh, President Reagan uh, came into office and said that his strategy, somebody asked him what his strategy was, and he said his strategy was simple. <laughs> we win, they lose. Okay, it was, you know, a shorthand. But he was able to... Um, he was able to have a powerful effect on the outcome of the Cold War. Um, absent a crisis, there was no crisis like 9/11 or uh, or uh, or Pearl Harbor. There was a um, a serious morale problem with the military. There had been the pre- President Reagan came to office after four years of severe underfunding. From the Carter administration indeed that was a campaign issue in 1980 um and his he was he was a very good leader and he was able to make the justification um convincingly to the American public and to a congress that didn't always agree with him um that uh military defense spending had to be increased um and it worked so I I don't I don't think that we have. I think we still have leaders who can make those arguments and who can be convincing and, and articulate. Um, so I'm. I don't think um, that we're doomed, <laughs> and, I, and I don't think that. And I don't think that the only way uh, to to galvanize the public is by a, a, a massive and spectacular reverse. I think it's possible that leadership articulate, intelligent leadership, um, moderate, intelligent, articulate leadership could get the country to do the right thing and bring Congress along.
1: Okay, so I accept that as a positive answer. We have in our history turned up leaders, both in Congress and in the executive, who are leaders, who are able to bring the public to where the public needs to be. So now we know what we're looking for. We're looking for those men and those women in our institutions to bring that information to the public and move with it. And that's not a bad place to end. Seth, this has been really, really enlightening. Um, I'm not sure we went where you wanted to go or where you thought we were, go- where were going, but I think it gives people a very good look at where we need to go and how we need to prepare to, as you, you say in the Yorktown um, Institute's website, secure the blessings of liberty. We shouldn't forget that. That's in our Constitution. It's in our foundational material. And we need to go for that. So thank you again for a great presentation.
0: Thanks for the opportunity, Shoshana.